Good morning, everyone. Please turn with me to Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Haley. He will wipe away every tear. I was with somebody not long ago, and tears, Vicki and I were with her, and tears came to her eyes, and her husband said, let me get you a tissue. Got up, got her a tissue. and helped her to wipe away her tears. God is so amazingly compassionate and powerful at the same time that he is going to one day, listen to this, one day he's going to wipe away every tear. Like, that's amazing believe the gospel this morning. You know, in Isaiah, we come in and out of these heavy subjects. Like every other week, we're in this heavy subject. I'm like, man, Isaiah, cut me some slack. Um, so today is, today you're going to laugh a little bit and maybe even cry a little bit. That's the way Isaiah reads, and I, it's real life, and I hope that you will experience that with us. Laugh a little bit and cry a little bit and make your faith real. Let's laugh, though, first. So just, like, think about this. The, the younger you are, the less threatening death is to you, right? When you're 17 to 27 range, you're bulletproof. You can do anything, and you try, like, just about everything. 27 to 37, though, you awaken to your mortality, usually through your lower back. <laughs> 37 to 47, you realize, I have a wife and kids. I need an attorney. I need a will. I need life insurance policy. And life continues to unfold. And then like Billy Crystal in this great scene in City Slickers. Do you remember this? He's in, the, in, in his son's classroom and his cl son's like this. Oh no, my dad has to talk. And so Billy Crystal's going through his riff on life. And he's like in your 40s, in your 50s. He gets to your, you know, he gets in, 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 in I think it's in, in, the, in the 40s and 50s range. You have, you have surgery, but you'll call it a procedure. It's still a surgery. 
And then he goes on through 60s, and, it's, and when you hit your 70s, you start having dinner at 2 o'clock, lunch at 10 o'clock, and breakfast the night before. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that section of the movie. I don't even remember the rest of the movie. Um, on a more serious note, the older you get, the more real death becomes. Mortality becomes more and more real with every single decade. And if 2020 has taught us anything, it's the fragile nature of human life. That's what we've been experiencing. And even closer to home, in our faith family, the church is a family, and we are committed to each other as a family is committed to one another. And in 2020, uh, or, or let's even think back, say, to, to December of 19, the last 14, 15 months, our family has known loss and grief, and really a double dose of this, a double suffering, because not only have, have you lost loved ones during this COVID season, but you, you suffer on top of that, the inability to grieve, right, with social, to grieve well with social distancing and isolation, it's hard to grieve well. So there's this, there's this double loss, double suffering. What I want to do to prepare your heart for this message is invite you to pray with me for those who have suffered double loss. And so we're just going to quiet our hearts for a minute and I'm going to slowly list the names of those who've been affected in our church family, and I, I probably won't get all of them, but I'll try to get most of them. If you think of someone that I have not covered, you go ahead and voice a prayer for them while, um, while we're walking through this, and I, I want to do this to prepare you for the message and for us to practice as a church family caring for one another and praying for one another. So voice, if you would, just a brief prayer of hope and encouragement as I walk through the last 14 months or so. Will you pray with me and pray for the family? As far back as December 19, the family of Billy Aaron, Carrie Gilmer, and then into 2020, Sylvia Plasters, the family of Roy Clifton, Jerry and Kay Young's family with the tragic loss of Larry. David Jones. Ruth Mitchell. Hayden. Katie. Irene. Barney. Arnold Alexander. Cornell Murphy. Raven Jessup, our friend, Barbara Eusen. And then early on Friday morning, Trish Costi. Suffering came to an end. Praise God. And so many family members, siblings that I have not mentioned, parents, thinking of Chuck's dad. God, we pray for these families our family. Will you minister to them in this season of double suffering?
we entrust them to you in the name of the one who stole the keys back. In the name of Christ who conquered sin, hell, and death. We pray in Christ's name. Our present culture wants to see death as natural, the simple expiration of biological life. That's kind of what the world wants you to think about death, that it's a natural thing, that it doesn't need really more of an explanation than that, that, that it, it, it's nothing more than simply the exhaustion of biological life. That's not the Christian reading of death. That's not the Scripture's perspective on death. Scripture teaches that death is, is just like the sin that triggers it. It's not a good thing. It's an antagonist. Cold, ugly, dark, hard, raw. Death is more like a thief, more like an unwelcomed intruder. The world's trying to coach us out of that thinking, but the Bible makes that very clear. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's what Isaiah 25 is about. Like Isaiah 25 doesn't mean anything if death isn't really a problem. God the King in Isaiah 25 will end the curse of death itself. Isaiah has this amazing vision. In 24, his vision is the final judgment of the earth, but in 25, it's a celebration. It's, a, it's an amazing feast to celebrate the end, the forever end of death as the glory of God comes to earth as it is in heaven. And we will feast in the house of Zion. We will feast and weep no more. Let me walk you through three simple kind of observations coming out of Isaiah 25. Number one, he is the Lord of the feast. God himself is the Lord of the feast. Look at verse six with me. Isaiah 25, verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Look at this. Like, I want to get you hungry today. I realize it's the 11 o'clock service. This was easier at 8.30 because people weren't that hungry yet, but this is going to be a problem for some of you. Like, it's going to create some hunger. Isaiah sees forward to a day when God himself will host the most amazing party and celebration ever known on the earth, and it will radiate from Mount Zion. It will radiate from Jerusalem, from the city of the great king. Don't think Mardi Gras or the Buccaneers boat parade party where the trophy got tossed or Cinco de Mayo or whatever, whatever other party you're thinking of. Don't, don't think of that kind of party at this point. Think instead of a beautiful, pure wedding celebration. Think of a party with integrity and the right intentions and covenant love and appropriate attire. Think of, like, think of an amazing wed wedding celebration with the most expensive accomplished caterer you could ever hire, except you can't hire him because he's just doing it because he's full of grace. And God himself hosts an amazing party. Look at this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Three things I want to just draw out to, to color in the hunger here and to get you interested in this. It's a feast of rich food. It is the highest quality food, the text says, a feast of rich food. 
right? So cooked to perfection, offered with perfect motivation. Have you ever, not have you ever, you have, right? But recently, think back. Recently, somebody made some amazing food for no reason other than just to bless you. Like, multiply that out exponentially. God, for no other reason than to bless you, puts this amazing feast before us. This is not Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen. This is heavenly food. You see what I did, did there? Okay. Sorry, I'm still trying to clean up from the first part. A feast of rich food, well-aged wine, wine that has matured in the waiting, wine that has been held to mature in the waiting for a amazing occasion. Best vineyards, highest quality grapes, most accomplished winemakers, and it's been saved for this celebration, well-aged wine. And then here's the third thing. There's choice meat. I love this one. Like rich food full of marrow. The NIV reads best of meats. If you have the Holman Christian, it says choice meat. The ESV has full of marrow. Do you see that? In verse 6, uh, rich food full of marrow. So think of a well-marbled ribeye, right? Dry-aged and prepared, maybe even reverse seared. I don't know how you do it, but think of an amazing choice cut, cooked to perfection. Like this is the kind of stuff, and, and every other dish you could possibly imagine, think Mediterranean or Asian, Latino, South African dishes, like dishes, it has to be an international feast because if you notice this, at least twice in the text, it says all nations, like everybody, all peoples, verse six, all nations, verse 7, right? All the earth, verse 8. In every verse, you have this beautiful picture of the whole world experiencing this feast. It's going to be amazing. Secondly, here's the occasion of the feast. I'm coming back to the nations. So nice, like, helps us to transition to point number two, the occasion of the feast. So, so what is the occasion of this feast. What is God doing? What do you think is happening here? Back in ancient days, kings would hold a feast to make a big announcement, right? Makes sense. You read about it in the books. You see it in the movies. Um, we even carry on traditions like this today. And so what? look at verses 7 and 8 and, and think with me about what it is God could be announcing. What's the big deal? What's the celebration? What's the announcement? Why, why does it look like God, God, like an ancient king, has called together all of his people to make an announcement? What, what do you think the announcement is? Verses 7 and 8. He's announcing that death will be put away forever. I will swallow up death forever, verse 8. Verse 7, he will swallow up on this mountain. He will cover. Look, the death, the, the, uh, you've got several images here. You've got swallowing up death. You've got covering. This covering, I like that. Uh, this veil, this, this, there's, 
over every nation on the earth, all people, doesn't matter who you are or where you are, the shroud, the covering of death, it's like a dark cloud that just hovers over all people anywhere, everywhere. No one gets out of, from under this. There's a shroud, there's a covering, there's, and God is going to swallow it up. God's going to make it go away. The death that has ruled the earth since Adam and Eve, drenching it with tears. The shroud of darkness that has covered all nations, the tears that have stained every face, verse 8, will be wiped away. And again, did you notice that the nations are included all throughout this announcement of the end of death is not just for Israel, it's for all peoples. It's for all people who will put their hope and trust in the Lord. Like it's not an unqualified promise. We, we learn this from studying the prophets. We're learning this from Isaiah, that, that this is not an unqualified guarantee for Israel or anyone else that death will be overcome for you. It's, it's not just like just happening. Yes, God is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and quick to forgive, but no one dare presume on his grace. That's what we're learning from Isaiah. No one dare presume on God's grace. That's the point being made here. Yet God intends to make his salvation available to all persons from all nations to remove the shroud of death from all people, not just Israel. But there is one qualification. There's a, there's a contingency. There's something that has to happen in order for God to be able to do what he's promising to do. You must abandon your trust in yourself and anything else to save you. The surrounding context of Isaiah 25 and 26 makes that clear over and over again. Let me, let me hook you with this by, by, by looking forward to chapter 26, to that famous verse that you love in chapter 26. Look at it, verse three. Many of you love this. You've memorized it. You've ca you, you've, there have been times when you've, you've clung to this verse in life. Verse 3 of chapter 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. Like, I'm trying to make the point that it's not an unqualified promise that God's going to save everyone from death. That's not the case. He will keep him, he will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, whose heart is stayed on him, who trusts in the Lord, who literally stakes his life or her life on God, on the ability to trust God. That's the qualification. It's genuine active faith in God, holy resting yourself. Like the way through the reality of death, this is what's happening in Isaiah 25, the way through the reality of death and judgment, the way to perfect peace and eternal life is God himself. There's no other way. So God's going to announce death's end, but in effect, it's only a blessing to those who trust in Him. He, like, hang on to that. That's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful passage. You should cling to it, but cling to it in its context here. He will give you perfect peace. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you 
because he trusts, because he relies on nothing else. Aren't you really, aren't you getting tired of relying on everything else? Because it, it keeps coming up short. And that's the occasion of the feast. So he's the Lord of the feast. The occasion of the feast is that he will one day, he's announcing in the future, like I think Isaiah is looking forward to the day when God announces the end of death for everyone. Now, look at verse 8, and I'll just reiterate this. He will swallow up, and this, will go, this takes us to our third point. So for the third point, there's a victory that has to happen before the feast. The victory before the feast, I want to cue you here on, on verse 8. He will, God will swallow up death forever. This is sometime in the future. Isaiah looking forward. Sometime in the future, God will do this. Here's what happens between the long distance future that Isaiah sees and the time in which we now live, right? The cross of Christ has already occurred. We live on the other side of the resurrection. There was a victory before the final feast. Let me tell you why I think that's the case. Hold your finger on verse 8 and go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, and look for the same line. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, is quoting this very line. All right, go forward to 1 Corinthians 15. So Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians And Paul has been building out his argument about the gospel and about the resurrection of Christ. And if there's no resurrection, then we're hopeless people. But there is a resurrection, he says. Therefore, we're filled with hope. And let me tell you what's going to happen one day. God, one day, is going to put death away forever. And he's rolling along. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it will come to pass what Isaiah wrote about. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Paul and Isaiah are talking about the same thing. Isaiah was talking about the Messiah conquering death. God got like, Isaiah gets a big picture vision, but, but, but Paul has it built out more fully and more clearly. The Messiah is overcoming death. Isaiah is going to flash forward a little bit on the suffering servant in this. We'll come back to that. But for now, he's thinking about God. God's swallowing it up. Paul says, I know more fully what's happened when Jesus conquered the grave, it was a fulfillment of this death is over. Death is swallowed up. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Verse 55. The victory before the final feast. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin. Sting of death is sin. Like the, like the scorpion of Revelation 9 who stings and poisons and torments people with death. The sting of death is sin. When, when sin gets into your life, it's a toxin like a scorpion stinging you with poison. When, when sin gets into your life, death is imminent. The sting of death is sin, right? The death of a flower is not the same thing as the death of a person because the death of a flower does not feel the same way as the death of a person. Oh yeah, the whole 
Creation groans under the weight of sin, but, but humanity feels the sting. And Paul says, thanks be to God, verse 57. Listen to this. Thanks be to God. Jesus draws out the sting. In his death, Jesus Christ was this amazing, mysterious antidote. And he immediately neutralizes the poison of sin and the effect of death for anybody who will trust in him. So that Jesus will go say things like, you know, on the other side of Lazarus' resurrection, anybody who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Or maybe it's right before he raises him. Yeah, help me out here. But, but he, in the Lazarus scene, right, in the Gospels, whoever, whoever dies, yet he shall live again, right? Never die. Jesus makes possible living forever. Now, some of you are already connecting the dots, and you're thinking, okay, Isaiah 25 is about a feast. Revelation 19 is about a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You remember that? Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're saying, okay, this sounds a lot like that feast. I think it's the same feast. Isaiah sees it. 800 years before Christ, John sees it 100 and however many years he's writing after Christ and he's got this vision of Jesus. They're both talking about the same end times marriage feast uh, that, will, that will inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. It's the feast of the lamb because Jesus, the spotless sacrificial lamb, successfully undermines the power of death itself. And then in Revelation chapter 20, right? Hell, death, and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, famously, the Bible says, God will wipe away every tear and death shall be over. No more. Same feast. Same idea. Death is real. You're going to have to find out. You're going to have to have an answer for this. Does your worldview, does your understanding of life have an answer for death? Christianity has an incredibly coherent answer. And there's other answers out there. But Christianity, I think, has the most compelling and most coherent answer as to what happens and why. I mean, the million-dollar question is, well, how come God doesn't just wave his magic wand? Like, we were talking about this earlier, um, Robert. Yeah, how come God doesn't just ma- wave his magic wand and, and make death go away? Right? He's certainly capable of doing that. He can't because he's perfectly just and holy, and his character will not allow him Therefore, sin and rebellion must have consequences. The curse is inescapable. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to pay for the robbery that went down in the garden. Somebody has to pay for that. And every robbery of glory ever since. Somebody has to pay for that. So the God who is holy is also rich in mercy and decides to send his perfectly righteous son to relive the life or to live for the first time a life that was never lived by any human being from birth to death, perfectly sinless. 
and then take that life and put it on the cross as a ransom payment to satisfy the justice of God. So, the gospel is, man, it's about so many things. The gospel is about healing. The gospel is about healing, about new life, uh, and it's about restoration, but it's also about overcoming death. Overcoming the fear of death, overcoming death itself. We started today's service with the creed. Probably my new favorite line in the Apostles' Creed, and you kind of have to have a favorite line, right? You gotta have a line, right? So I, my favorite line right now, it can change, it might be different next year, I hope it is, but right now, my favorite line in the creed is, I believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, died, and was buried, here it is, and descended to the dead. That's my favorite line right now. Descended to the dead, he's like, that sounds moribund. Isn't that a word about death? That sounds morbid. Your favorite line is the descended to the dead? We have a creepy pastor. Well, we already knew that. My favorite line, descended to the dead, because like it's so real. Like, in my line of business, I hear about people dying frequently. And it hurts. And it's real. And your thinking and your, your worldview, your, your way of processing life, it better have an answer for this. The reason I love this line is because it makes sense of what Jesus Christ did. He descended to the dead. He fully descended into the human condition. While he was there, I'm going to say it this way. While he was there lying in what appears to be a hopeless state of death, the Father and the Spirit never stop working. And something mysterious and amazing and miraculous occurs. In that three-day window, the curse of all of mankind is being reversed. And the spirit of the living God and God the Father who sent his son is bringing his mission to accomplishment. And on Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. He lays down in grief. He awoke with the keys, writes John Mark McMillan in an amazing tune I've never heard before until this week. It's called Death in His Grave. I would recommend you to check it out. Great song, Death in His Grave. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Laid down in grief, he woke with the keys. The man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. Like God turned this thing back on death itself. Miraculously, amazingly. I don't know how to describe that. But the Father and the Spirit are at work. And then Jesus awakens, laid down in grief, but he, but he wakes with the keys. The keys that nobody else 
has been able to handle or have power and authority over. So Revelation 1.18, we read, we read this from Jesus' mouth. Jesus says to John in Revelation 1.18, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but now I'm alive forever. I have the keys of death and Hades. Read, someone else had them up until now, but now I have them and I never give them back. <laughs> That's awesome. Jesus took the keys and conquered death. I believe that. I, you need, even if you're not a Christian yet, if you're still thinking about Christianity, you need a view of life, listen, that has an answer for death and heaven and hell and eternity and all this stuff that is, is very real. I, I, yeah, I love this. I have the keys. What are you going to do? Are you listening? What do you think is going to happen when you die someday? I mean, it's going to happen. What, what do you think is going to happen when that day comes? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm into this Christianity thing. Why not? I mean, why not bet? Why not just bet on Christ and see what happens? In 1986, when I trusted Christ, I wasn't, like, I didn't fully understand what I know now about the gospel, but I knew enough to say, man, I, Jesus, my prayer went something like this, Jesus, if you're who they say you are in the scriptures and the people that are telling me about Jesus, the church, Jesus, if you're who they, like Jesus, if you are who they say you are, I'm all in. If you're the son of God, I want to trust you with my life. Will you save me? Will you give me this thing that is called eternal life that they keep talking about? And will you protect me from death? And I'm not going to tell you that since that day I've never had doubts. You know, sometimes guys in pulpits will get up and say, man, I made a decision. I never turned back. I never doubted. I'm, I'm not going to tell you that. That's not true. But I will say this. I've never, a single day of my life, awakened with regret for trusting in Christ. And with each subsequent month and year of my life, I've gotten a better and clearer understanding of how this all fits together. And there is no turning back. There may come doubts. There will come sin struggles, but there's no turning back. I believe Jesus has the keys to eternal life and the keys over death. I want to invite you to trust in Christ today. 
if you've never before said, okay, Jesus, I trust you. I want to rest my, I want to stake my life on you. And what you'll find out if you do that is he staked his whole life right for you. I want to pray for us. Those of you who are already believers, that God would strengthen your faith and that the fears of death would be overcome by Christ. And those of you who have not yet trusted Christ, that you would have the freedom and the desire to give your life to him. Can I pray for us? Will you join me? You will keep him in perfect peace whose heart and mind and trust is in you. Lord, we want that this morning. We want to trust you with our lives. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and soul and, and stop leaning on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning whether for the first time in belief confessing Jesus as Lord, like those who are considering baptism right now, uh, Lord, those who are considering baptism, I help them to see the beauty of this confession and the trust and the rest that we believe. And Lord, give us that peace, that convincing, satisfying, deep peace that you are who you say you are. We pray this in Christ's name.